Good morning. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. If you're using a Pew Bible, uh, it'll be on page 814. Matthew chapter 9. We'll start in verse 35. Matthew 9, verse 35. This is God's word. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word. So, as a way of recap, Today's verse is is almost pointing back. We are concluding Jesus' ministry in Galilee. But at the same time, Matthew is also setting up this transition to the next major section on evangelism. So I think it would be helpful for us to pause and to look back at what Jesus accomplished in Galilee. Verse 35, and Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So today, there are three major headings that I would like to discuss. Let's be a little bit more organized for you guys. So one, Jesus' ministry. Two, Jesus' motive. And three, Jesus' mission. So... Without further ado, let's start with verse 35. Now, verse 35 is very similar to Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. If you don't mind, go ahead and turn there. Matthew 4, verse 23. It says, And he, being Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. That was the start of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So as we come to the end, Matthew is using very similar language, the kind of recap. Very similar to when you watch a TV show and you watch the next episode, it said, previously on this episode, gives you the highlights as it relates to this new episode. So verse 35 is the same way. Matthew is highlighting these points of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So, what was important to Matthew? 
I think it would be helpful for us to spend time there. So the first phrase, throughout all the cities and villages. So it's interesting that Matthew mentions specifically that Jesus traveled through all the cities and villages. Now, scholars debate exactly how many villages and how many cities that Jesus would have traveled through. But all of them do agree that this would have been a physically, physically demanding journey which really underscores the thrust of today's passage. There is a need for laborers. There, the, the harvest is bountiful, right? We see this in the verses and the passages that we just covered in Matthew. But he goes on. He says, he, Jesus is teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I'm not going to assume that you know what gospel means, or what kingdom means. So gospel meaning the good news. Now, particularly in the gospel accounts, when it says the gospel of the kingdom, the writers are just summarizing all of Jesus's teachings, all of Jesus's healings. So this is good news. Jesus was going throughout all the cities, proclaiming the good news that God's kingdom is here. And it arrived with me, with Jesus. Now, if you remember, the Israelites, at this time, they were waiting for the fulfillment of this kingdom. They were promised long ago that somebody would come from the seed of David and he would establish his everlasting throne. And that God's people would live in security, and dwell in his land forever, unafflicted by foreign oppressors. So this, to an Israelite, would have indeed been good news. Good news, the kingdom is here. This would have been an extremely big deal to the Israelites. Now, this phrase Good news is often associated with this announcement of a kingdom. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, we see this picture of this messenger announcing this king is coming. How beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring this good news. So Jesus is filling that role as that messenger, heralding the good news to the people of Galilee. Good news, the kingdom is here. But Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't just tell people, hey, FYI, kingdom's here, just so you know. He proved it. He proved it with his healings. Like Trey quoted last time we were in Matthew, uh, in Isaiah uh, 35, he says, behold, your God will come. How do we know? How do we know when God is coming? Then the eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That sounds familiar. We just covered these specific scenarios where Jesus is doing that. He's fulfilling this prophecy. So he's not just saying, the kingdom's here, but he's showing it. He's proving it. He's proving that the kingdom is here. So, all of this to say, 
before we move into the thrust of today's verses, Matthew is showing, hey, don't forget, Jesus is that king. The kingdom of God is here. So as we move into the imperative, keep this in mind. Jesus is showing us who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. Keep that in mind. Verse 36. When he, being Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So, the crowds continued to be the focal point and the object of Jesus' ministry, right? But now we're shown a a motive, a motive for Jesus' ministry to these crowds, along with obeying the Father's will and fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies, we see that Jesus had compassion on the crowds. The noun form of the phrase had compassion literally refers to the intestines or bowels. In Scripture, it's sometimes used literally like when describing Judas's death. Now, I'm not going to quote that verse because there are children here, but go back to it. However, more often, though, it's used figuratively to represent emotions. It's similar to how we use heart today. This grieves my heart. This makes my heart happy. We're not literally saying my heart is happy, but we feel this strong emotion, okay? So when Matthew tells us that Jesus had this compassion on the crowds, what we were told is that Jesus was moved deeply, so deeply that it was almost a physical reaction. So we get a powerful and kingly figure that is also immensely compassionate. I think sometimes in our circles, our reform circles, we often look at Jesus and view Jesus as this cold and distant God. But remember, he said, bring the children to me. He touched the leper. He had this deep compassion to them. He loved them. He loved them dearly. Now we're given a description of the crowds, sheep and shepherd. And we're told why Jesus has this compassion towards them. For they were like sheep without a shepherd. The metaphor of sheep and shepherd was well known in Israel's history. God often describes his relationship with Israel in this way. He is their shepherd, and they are his sheep. The leaders that God appointed to watch over his people were also likened to shepherds. We are told that before entering the promised land, God appointed Joshua to lead his people so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. And of course, we cannot forget one of the greatest shepherds in Israel's history, David. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pens. 
from tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. Point to remember is that this concept of sheep and shepherd would have been well known to the Israelite cultures, would have been well known to Matthew's original readers. So the question is, why were the crowds described as sheep without a shepherd? Where were the leaders? Where were the shepherds? Well, some of you may already know, but the spiritual leaders during this time would have been the scribes and Pharisees. The shepherd's job was to ensure that his sheep were led peacefully beside still waters and lacked nothing. In the same way, God's appointed leaders were to nourish and care for his people spiritually. That's what these scribes and Pharisees were appointed to do. They were to care for God's people, to teach and model obedience to God's laws. But instead, what we see during Jesus' time is that the shepherds actually became a stumbling block to God's people. They were failing at this job. Instead of caring and leading, these shepherds were doing the opposite. The Jewish people were suffering under the oppression of the occupying Roman forces on top of all of their daily concerns, all of their heartbreaks, just the difficulties of life. They needed to be cared for because they could not do it themselves. And they couldn't find any relief from these shepherds that God appointed them. Instead of teaching God's law, they taught their own self-made traditions that often contradicted God's law. They'd offered a religion that added burdens instead of lifting them. In effect, the people were not served, but exploited. Instead of compassion, they were treated with disdain. Now, it's clear who the sheep are, right? The crowds. What domestic animal is more dependent, more vulnerable, more stubborn, and more in desperate need of care than a sheep? A sheep is a perfect picture to describe man's helplessness. Like sheep, people tend to wander away from safety and get lost. In the same way, people tend to stray from God's law that ultimately was there to protect them. Sheep are also known for their vulnerability and their tendency to just go with the crowd. In the same way, People can be easily manipulated by their peers to follow false gods if they are not careful. The sheep need a shepherd. The crowds needed a true shepherd to guide them, to protect them from danger, and to lead them to green pastures where they can find nourishment. And just like all the other shepherds in Israel's history, they started well, But they all failed. So there is this desperate need for a true 
real shepherd. Now in the midst of this bleak and depressing situation, we, we see this man, Jesus of Nazareth. A divine figure who travels through all of their cities, all of their homes, and all of their towns, and deals with all of their needs, all of their wants, all of their unbelief, all of their sicknesses. And after such a demanding ministry, what do we see? How does Jesus respond to these people? He had compassion. This is such a beautiful contrast Matthew gives us between these false shepherds and Jesus, the ultimate shepherd. Imagine yourself in this situation, having burdens upon burdens, traditions upon traditions, requirements upon requirements just placed upon you, in addition to just just life. And then you hear, and then you hear, from this man, Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy And my burden is light. Imagine how refreshing it would have been to just hear that. I know personally, it spoke to me when I was writing this sermon. I'm not going to lie, this week has just been rough, just like some of you. And it's just one of those weeks where you're just so tired. You're just so weary. Why is this world so broken? You just, those moments where you're just stopped in your tracks and you don't know what to do. You don't know what to do. You don't know who to turn to. I've been getting messages from my friends and families of just things going on, whether it's awaiting a a medical diagnosis or hearing a diagnosis and wishing it wasn't true or just the complexities of, of family life. I just find my heart crying out, God, where are you? How long, Lord? Do you see us? We're hurting. What am I supposed to do? And then I come to these words by this powerful, this kingly, compassionate shepherd. And he says, says, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me. You will find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Maybe maybe you can relate. I, I just encourage you, brothers and sisters, go to the great shepherd, the one that says, come to me. I will give you rest. Find your rest in him. Please. So verse 36. Verse 36. 
gives us a beautiful picture of our Lord's heart. We find that one of his divine motives for his ministry was compassion. By reference of a sheep in need of a shepherd, this is another nod by Matthew of an Old Testament prophecy. Ezekiel describes the coming Messiah as a shepherd, and God will use the shepherd to establish his everlasting covenant with Israel. Jesus is that shepherd that was promised. We can see that with his care and compassion towards God's people. It's Jesus' motive. Now we turn to Jesus' mission. Verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the metaphor shifts from the sheep in need of a shepherd to a bountiful harvest in need of laborers. Now, although the metaphor changes, what the subject of this metaphor is still the same. It's the crowds. Jesus is referring to the crowds. What is, what is this imagery of harvest and laborers? In other parts of Scripture, the harvest imagery is often used in relation to God's judgment. In the book of Joel, God declares to Israel, Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. And what we've already read in Revelation, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now, although the people, the crowds, may have only gone to Jesus for their physical needs and to maybe hear his teachings, he knew that they needed something much more significant. Although their physical diseases did move him, what moved him even more was their spiritual disease, the disease of sin. He was not fooled by their religious fronts or their spiritual facades. He knew their hearts. Our Lord knew the tragedy and anguish of a destiny that awaited some of them. 
a place of unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It grieved his heart that even one person should be there because he does not desire for any of us to perish. When he saw the crowds, he taught them and preached to them and healed them all for the ultimate purpose that they might come to him and escape the harvest of judgment. Because there was no other way. There was no other way. He knew that they would one day face God's judgment against their sin. This is why our Lord ministered compassionately and tirelessly. So who will join him? Who will go and reach these lost, hell-bound people? Who will go and proclaim the good news of that God's kingdom is here? Who will go? Then we see that Jesus turns to his disciples and tells them to pray. He tells them and urges them to pray that God, who is the Lord, the owner and supreme ruler of the harvest, that he would make, that he would lovingly send laborers to warn of the coming judgment. Christ's desire and mission was to seek and save the lost. This is a theme that's just abundantly clear in Matthew's gospel. And this desire for more laborers to go into the harvest stemmed from his deep compassion. This compassion that he had on the crowds. And then immediately what we see in the following verses is that Jesus is stepping forward and by way of answering their prayers, he commissions them. He commissions them to be the laborers. Now up to this point, the disciples were merely just observers of Jesus' ministry. But now, he calls them to join him, to partake in this ministry. We are told that Christ gave them the power to heal all types of diseases and sicknesses. The king, who possesses all authority over heaven and earth, now delegates a piece of that authority to his disciples. Choosing 12 as his representatives would have ultimately signified to a Jewish audience that this is the restoration of God's kingdom. It's here. It's happening. It's coming. The king is expanding his kingdom. The great shepherd is raising under-shepherds to seek the lost sheep. To go into the bountiful harvest... And to reap. Now, this commission is just the start. It serves as a type or a shadow of a greater commission. This opportunity will prepare some of these same disciples to lead the early church movement, as we see in the book of Acts. Again, our passage this morning is a midpoint between the conclusion of Jesus' ministry in Galilee and the next major section of Matthew. 
He wants us to know that God's kingdom has arrived with Jesus. His divine ministry and his divine care towards the crowds make that clear. Jesus is the shepherd that would gather the lost sheep of Israel. But there is a need for more laborers. He tells us to pray for more laborers that will warn and proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So what, what does this mean for us? What is the main application? Well, in his days on earth, Christ's laborers were few, and today they are still few. I think it's clear what we ought to be doing. We need to pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray and beseech him that he would send more laborers into this bountiful harvest. I don't think I need to convince you on how lost the world is. And some of the conversations that I have with you, oh, I was just reading on the news, I was reading this article, this and that, and the world is going to, going to hell in a handbasket. Where are the laborers? We need to pray. We need to pray not only for more laborers, but that God in his loving kindness and his grace would make us a laborer. We need to pray that it starts with us. Love this quote from uh, C.H. Spurgeon. He says, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for. There is this sense of responsibility as a Christian and a sense of honor and privilege. Christian, you have been harvested to eternal glory. You yourself, at one point in your life, was part of that harvest. You were awaiting judgment, whether you knew it or not. And Christian, now, you have life with the everlasting God. Praise God. This is good news. You are no longer an orphan, but a citizen of this kingdom. You are no longer a lost sheep without a shepherd. You are no longer a slave to sin. The great physician has healed you. Knowing, knowing what you've been saved from, knowing how undeserving We are, knowing how free this gift was, how could we not? How could we not proclaim the good news of the kingdom? It's another quote. Could a doctor sit in comfort and just let his patients die? Could a fireman sit idle and let men burn but give no hand? 
Can you sit at ease in Zion with the world around you damned? Quickly, I think about my own testimony when I, when I think about the bountiful harvest and uh, my mom is here and so she knows the story much more, but I think about how in my own life, I would have been the last person to ever become a Christian. My family would have been the last family on earth to ever become a Christian. My mother gave her life to Christ because a faithful laborer came into the prison she was at. And my mom became a faithful laborer in my life. All of you Christians have somebody that you can think about that labored tirelessly for your soul, that dealt with your stubbornness, that dealt with your incompetence. And they labored for your soul because they knew what awaited your soul. And now, here I am on this stage, so undeserving to be here in seminary, studying and teaching God's word, and I think about who I was and what God has saved me from. And I can't help but think, Lord, please, please, Lord, would you send me? Would you send me into the harvest? There should also be this sense of dread and fear for those around you, your neighbors, the person that you may be sitting next to in this very church. They may not know the Lord. They may be in the harvest. There should be the sense of fear. We're reminded over and over again in the, in the word of God how quickly our lives are. Our lives are like flowers of the field. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Our lives are like this mist. Knowing that every single soul, every single soul, your neighbor, your coworker, the students that you teach, the person at the coffee shop, the person you talk to at the drive-through, knowing that every single one of those people will spend eternity in somewhere. How can you not be compelled to just pray for a sentence to warn them? Now, I'll say this quickly, but I don't want to diminish the significance of this. If you are here today and you do not know the Lord, my friend, I am so glad that you are here. Truly, I have been praying for you these past couple of weeks. We've been talking about Jesus as a king and as a shepherd. And you may ask yourself, well, how is Jesus a king and a shepherd? Didn't he die on the cross? Well, he is a king. He was a different type of king, and he brought a different type of kingdom, one that astonished everybody. Instead of a crown of gold, he got a crown of thorns. Instead of praise and honor by his people, by his subjects, he was spit on and mocked. And those beautiful feet that brought the good news... They were nailed to that cross. How is this good news? How could this be good news? Such a horrific event. How could this be good news? 
Well, on that cross, God the Father poured out his all-consuming wrath against sin. He poured it on his beloved son, the innocent one, the one who knew no sin. God's wrath against sin was atoned for on the cross. My friend, if you do not know the Lord, if you are sitting here and you do not trust in him as your Lord and Savior, I'm asking you, please, please, go to the great king. Go to the great shepherd. Go to him. There is no need to endure the wrath of God. It has been paid for. He's made a way. He's the only one. Please. Please. I will stay here with you if you are unsure. Now, as we come to a close, as some of you know, <clears throat> one, of our, one of our dearly loved and faithful brothers, Brian Tom, passed away. And he's gone to be with his Lord and Savior. And everyone here who knows Brian can attest that he was a faithful laborer. And he finished the race well. Praise God. I just, I think about when Brian, when Brian got to be with his Lord and Savior, what the Lord would have said to him, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I think, personally, I want to finish the race well. I want to be a faithful laborer. Lord, please, Well, I don't want to delay you any more, church. We need to pray to the Lord of the harvest. The harvest is bountiful, but the laborers are few. This is an urgent matter. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this morning that you've allowed us to come here and to worship you. Father, we are thankful for your word. Father, most importantly, we are thankful for your son, Jesus. We are thankful for what he's done on the cross. We are thankful that the tomb is empty. Father, I pray for those that are in this church that do not know you. Father, that you would quicken their hearts that you would give them the ability to repent and to trust in you. Father, we ask, we beseech you, that you would send more laborers into your harvest. Father, we ask that you would make us into laborers. We ask that you would put lost people in our paths today as we leave here. Help us, Father. Help us in our weakness. 
Help us to have the gospel on our lips, ready to proclaim the good news that your kingdom is here. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.